Well, good morning, and welcome to Livingstone Calvary Chapel. Uh, this morning we're going to be in, uh, back in the Gospel of Luke. We're moving into chapter 23, so if you want to turn there, um, I'll give you a little bit of time to do so. Luke chapter 23, we'll be in probably in the first 25 verses this morning. I have a few announcements, uh, two of which is we have two new newsletters from uh, some of our missionaries, uh, Nolan and Marie Shockey in uh, Juarez. Uh, and the work that God's doing there with the School of Ministry and the uh, struggles that are going on at the border right now, and then also from Milan and Zita in the Czech Republic. Um, all of them have good information and prayer requests and some photos of what's going on in the ministries there. And so uh, they also have contact information uh, in the, the newsletters, and I know that um, our missionaries love to hear from you guys, so uh, feel free and uh, I would encourage you to do so also to take their emails that you see here and just email them, encourage them, let them know that you're praying for them, that here at Livingstone we consider them to be part of our extended family and the work that God's doing in those two places. So these newsletters are outside on the, uh, when you leave the sanctuary, fellowship hall there in the, the, where the bulletin, where the uh, missionary counter is at. Uh, in your bulletin, there's a few announcements again uh, I, I spoke about this in a little bit of detail last week and, and made an appeal uh, to the church uh, in regards to you know, what this year looks like for you and um, understanding that, that Jesus Christ is our Savior, as we've talked about, but, but at the same time, we need to receive him as our Lord. And as, as the Lord, he's the, the master, we're the servant, and as Christians, we're called to be servants. You know, if you're not serving the Lord... How do you ever expect to hear on that day when he returns, well done, good and faithful servant? And, and the Bible tells us that's one of the things that's going to take place. So I challenge you to be serving the Lord, serving the Lord in the community, serving the Lord in the ministries that we have at this church and, and also here in this church. So um, some of the ministry needs that we have that are opportunities to serve is the Sunday school. Uh, Brandon's in the back uh, running the sound. Him and his wife Amanda run our Sunday school ministry as well. Uh, we're in need of teachers there, and uh, for two particular uh, uh, classrooms specifically, and then also uh, we are needing additional people to, to either who know how or are willing to learn the uh, soundboard and then how to operate the slides on, on a Sunday morning. Uh, so for the audio video ministry or the Sunday school ministry, speak to Brandon. Um, women's Bible study starts back up, is that this, is it this Thursday? It's already the ninth. This year is almost over. I don't know what to say. <laughs> almost the ninth already. Don't blink. This year will be over as quick as last year, probably even quicker. So has anybody had the chance to write 2020 yet? Yeah? Did you write 2020 or did you mess up? 2019. You got it? You got it? Okay. Um, women's Bible study starts back up. It's an afternoon and an evening Bible study. Men's Bible study is also on Thursday and Friday, so please come and join us. The youth retreat uh, and sign up is uh, on uh, the information counter as you head back to the children's ministry area. So uh, if you have a, a youth uh, in ages 6th six, grade to 12th grade, uh, that's coming up in February. Please sign up now if you can. All right, and then lastly, every year um, for, I don't know, probably the last 15 years, something like that, we've done a church direction, appreciation, kind of a planning, sharing with the congregation where we're going for this next year, things that God's laid on our heart as far as a ministry so we can all be uh, heading the same direction and praying for God's will to come to pass. And um, 
This last year was the last year that um, uh, we made a decision to not do a full dinner anymore. Uh, we started getting over the 100-person mark that was coming for it, and um, I, me and my, my wife and kids, that was something that we did for a long time, and it's just, it be, it's too much for one person to do, I'm just going to say it. And uh, it ends up being a, a, a lot. It's, hopefully you guys have all enjoyed the food. If, you, if you're disappointed that you're not going to get dinner this year, I'm sorry, but please still come to the meeting. We're going to be doing dessert, and a lot of those desserts will be homemade, so we'll have dessert, coffee, uh, hot tea. And um, the elders of the church, uh, those that, that, that uh, uh, some of them won't be able to make it, but most of them will be, but because uh, they've already had some previous commitments. But the elders will share also with uh, things that, that God's put on their heart and encourage you. My, me and my wife will, will speak to you. And um, it's just a good way to, for us, first of all, to say thank you to you guys for supporting the church with uh, uh, your, your, your hours of volunteering and your, your commitment and, and encouragement to us, uh, but also to see what God's doing with our church and where we're going to be going this next year and some of the things that he's laid on heart. There's some, there's some cool things, and so I would encourage you to come in here. That's this January 26th from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. So mark your calendars. Uh, it's for uh, young adults, meaning like 13 years and older. So um, there's no child care. So if you have young kids and you want to come, uh, you need to find a, a sitter. We don't have a sitter here for that. All right, uh, Luke chapter 23. Um, one, of the, one of the things I want to share before we get started is um, we, when we were in Israel last time, I got the opportunity, Pastor Al from the Calvary Worship Center, let me, let me teach in, in two places. And uh, it was really cool because they, they all kind of tie together with what we read here. I got to t- teach in, a, in a, a city on the Sea of Israel called Caesarea uh, Maritima. Um, and uh, it's, it's in the Bible, it's just referred to Caesarea um, and uh, Caesarea, we're going to talk about that today in regards to Pontius Pilate and is an ancient city. Uh, it, you can go and visit some of the ruins there uh, still today. As a matter of fact, um, there was a stone that's called the Pontius Pilate stone that was found and a replica found there in the ruins that they, they excavated out from that, that area and they have a replica of that stone. You can go ahead and search online, if you will. It's called the Pilate Stone. And um, the cool thing about it is that the, the, it's a documentation of the governors that ruled over the region of Judea, and Caesarea being in that region, of course, Israel, or Jerusalem as well. But uh, it has, uh, it's etched in the stone is these different governors that ruled over Judea, in ancient, well, in ancient Israel. And one of the reasons I point that out to you this morning is because one of the things that we're going to read about is this encounter that Jesus has with Pontius Pilate, a trial that he goes through and the, and the decision that Pontius Pilate, that Pilate makes. And um, uh, the Bible spoke about Pilate being the governor over the, the region of Judea long before archaeologists ever had any evidence that this guy even existed and that he was, in fact, a governor, as the Bible said. And, and I love that because I point that out to you again this morning because the things that we're reading about here are, are historically documented truths. 
They're spiritual truths as well, but the, the Bible, in case you, you didn't know, is the most accurate history book ever given to man. And it documents ancient people from the beginning of time, including Adam and Eve, okay, who were, were real people, um, but, but, I mean, other civilizations, cities, uh, historical events, and the Bible's never been wrong. And, and often histor- historians and archaeologists and these kinds of things have spoken against the Bible because there's been no historical or secular historical or, or uh, other archaeological events to support the claims that the Bible has made. And you know what? We tell them, we say, keep digging. Keep digging. And, and the reason why we say that is because sooner or later, just like with, with the Pilate Stone, they find tangible evidence that supports what the Bible has already claimed for thousands or hundreds of years. And man, I share that with you this morning, not only because of where we're at in the text and saying about the people that we're reading about are not only historically accurate people, but it, it, it should once again settle your faith and go, and I have good reasons to believe the things that I'm reading about here, the things that I'm building my life upon. They're just not myths, right? They're just not made-up stories. And, 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 and they're not only, not only that, but they are truths that have been handed down and documented through time that are, are accurate for us today. Nothing's been lost over the years. Nothing. The other place that I got to teach was in the Antonio Fortress ruins there in the old city of Jerusalem. You guys, some of you guys were there, and you remember that. And and I got to teach as a um, about the the trial of Jesus as he stood before Pontius there in the Antonio Fortress, and we're going to speak about that. And again, that that Antonio Fortress was a place where the Romans set up um, their uh, their command post in the old city of Jerusalem. And it's also been excavated, and it's underneath the church. Everything in Israel now, if it's a holy place, it's got a church on it or next to it. Or, you know, and um, it's usually the Catholics or the Franciscans or, or something like that. But you can go underneath this church, and it's all been excavated to the original um, floor of these old, old stones and um, where there were these prison cells and, and the, the, the courtyard, and um, you can go, and I would encourage you to go online and, and search that out and look at it. You can see the same things that we who went got to see, and um, when you are there, when I was there, and I don't know how it was for everybody else, but even though I was the one teaching, when I was there and reading these passages of scriptures from all of the gospel accounts, which told us about what took place in that place, it's an overwhelming experience. And, and, and this morning, I, I want you to kind of be able to enter into that with me today and with those of us who have been to this place where these events took place, even though we're here in Colorado. I, I want you to, in your mind, to be able to go, these, these events were real things. They really took place. And they happen in places that we can go to today and, and, and see and, and be even more moved uh, in your heart and your mind to, to um, be steadfast in this faith that you have been called to in your faith in Jesus Christ. And truthfully, the things we read in this chapter, they are both sad and um, yet they are, they are glorious at the same time. So with that, um, if you'll, again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23. 
this morning I want to pray for the E-Free Church. They're next on our list. Pastor Jim Tolson, he was on uh, sabbatical for about two months, a little longer. Uh, he was back in the pulpit a couple weeks ago. And um, I know that they had a, a good team of leaders there who, who covered the pulpit while he was gone and teaching. I know the church is glad to have him back. Uh, Jim is Jim is the only... Uh, Jim. Jim has been here, the only other pastor in the community that's been here longer than, than we have been here, I've been here, and, and, and I respect him, and I look up to him, not only because he loves God and loves God's word and loves God's people, but that guy has been faithful to, to, to minister to this community, and it's not always been easy for him. Um, and so I want to lift up Pastor Jim and the other brothers and sisters at um, our, uh, the E-Free Church, our brothers and sisters in the Lord there at the E-Free Church today. So, and then we'll pray for the word, and then we'll read the first five verses. So if you bow your heads, and we'll pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. Again, this time where we set aside this morning to remember the work that he did on the cross, why he was sent, and um, where he is at um, evermore, living evermore, making intercession for us, Lord. And we call out to you through your son Jesus again this morning and ask, Lord, that you would teach us by your word, that we would be encouraged as we study these historical truths, Lord, as we read the words of um, that are recorded of uh, Pilate and the elders and the religious leaders and your son Jesus that um, are documented here for us in regards to the trial and the suffering that Jesus went through after he was arrested. And Lord, as we read these things, help us to see the application to them, from them to our own lives. And Lord, that we would, uh, that we would love you more. That we would glorify you by the way we live, that we would be submitted to your lordship, Lord, that we would be filled with joy to know that you chose us, that you saved us, that you've redeemed us, that you sanctify us, and Lord, that you um, call us your special people, peculiar people. And Lord, for our other brothers and sisters who are also peculiar, and in, at the, the E-Free Church, Lord, we love them. We know a lot of them personally, just from relationships that we have. We thank you, God, that there are other believers in this community that we're not alone, who love you, who stand up for truth, who proclaim the gospel message, who love your word. And Lord, we know that to be true about the E-Free Church and the people there and Pastor Jim. And so today, Lord, as he's back in the pulpit and um, getting his feet back underneath of him from being on sabbatical, um, uh, Lord, we lift him up to you and pray, God, that you would encourage him, that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit, and you would bring forth the truths that are found in your word um, through the power that you give him, Lord, through the wisdom that you give him. And I ask that here also for me and for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, it says in chapter 23, it says, Then the whole multitude of them arose, and led him, speaking of Jesus, to Pilate. And they began to curse him, or curse, curse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you a king of Jews, of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, Pilate, and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they 
were the more fierce. And this is speaking of this group, this whole multitude that brought Jesus to Pilate. They were the more fierce, saying, another accusation. He stirs up the people, in other words, in, in, in like leading a rebellion against Rome. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Galilee, beginning, or all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this, to this place. All right, so as we begin to look at this uh, historical account uh, and the spiritual truths that are found in it, I want to clearly identify those spoken of in verse 1. In verse 1, it tells us that the multitude of them that rose up to lead Jesus to Pilate, and this multitude, we know from last week's chapter and, and, and just the, 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 the culmination of all of the gospel accounts, and I'm going to be referencing a lot of the other gospels today so that we can get the, 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 the bigger picture, the whole picture of a lot of things that we're reading about here. But this multitude consisted, first of all, of the chief priests. And we know that at this time there were two. There was Ananus, um, who was the rightful uh, uh, chief priest, the one that had um, that, that the Jews recognized as the chief priest. And then there was Caiaphas. And, and, so, and, and, and Caiaphas... Uh, is the one that's referenced in this group of people. Um, so you had Caiaphas, the chief priest. You had the two sects of religious leaders known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are also part of this multitude. And the reason we know that they're a part of this specifically is because these were there were elders from these two groups, not all of them from these two groups, but the elders from these two groups, the religious leaders from these two groups whom that, that were served on a on a council or a court of, of 70, I think it's 70 or 72, I can't remember exactly, Seven, it's, it's, right, it's either 70 or 72 uh, members who, who formed a Jewish court called the Sanhedrin. And in the previous chapter, we had read that after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, then he was taken to Annas and, Annas and then eventually to Caiaphas, who had been, like I said, appointed high priest by the Romans, and we know that it was under the cover of night, still nighttime, that Jesus was unlawfully questioned. He was, he was informally tried by the high priest, un- unlawfully questioned, and beaten at Caiaphas's house by those who mocked him, Jesus, and spoke blasphemous or evil things against him, uh, against him as a person, against what he taught, and, and just lies. And and, and what we read is what we read that was as soon as soon as it was morning at the first light with the rising of the sun, as soon as it was morning, and what we what we know by that is meaning that it was the very first opportunity for the Sanhedrin, this this culmination, this collection of this of these religious elders who formed the, the, the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, it was the first opportunity for them to legally convene. The Mosaic Law said that, that the, the, in the court system, everything had to be done during the day. It can be done at night. And, and that's why even the questioning by the, of the high priest by Jesus was really in, in, in uh, it was uh, breaking the, 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 laws, the Mosaic Laws. And so as soon as the, the, the morning came, the first opportunity for the Sanhedrin to legally convene, they tried Jesus, who had been arrested, who had been betrayed in a Hebrew court of law. And when you look at the other gospel accounts, Mark and Matthew specifically, we are told that he was tried with many, by many false witnesses. And, um, 
But the testimony of these false witnesses did not agree, and that was a very significant thing in the court of Hebrew law because it says by the mouth of two or three, everything must be established. You had to have a a, a consensus. It couldn't just be one witness coming up and accusing you of something. There had to be two or three to substantiate that claim, and their testimonies had to agree. And, And these false witnesses... Um, their, their testimonies didn't agree. And you would think, well, how come the Pharisees and the religious leaders weren't able, if they established these false witnesses, why weren't they able to get this all lined up? So at least the witnesses that they brought would be able to have false stories that lined up. And you have to remember that this was never their plan to do what they were doing at this time. These things were working in accordance to God's plan. And God said, this is the time for that because the Messiah had to be to be the, being the Lamb of God had a day on which he was to be sacrificed, a day in which he was to be offered up for the sins. And that was in conjunction with the Passover and, 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 and other things that we don't want to talk about, I don't have time to talk about this morning. But, but when Judas came to him on that day and said, listen, I'm willing to give him up. I'm willing to betray him. The Pharisees and these religious leaders had very little time, these who, who hated Jesus, to begin to put this plan into effect. And it was reflected in this, in this court. They brought these witnesses, but these false witnesses' testimonies did not agree. And, and when the Sanhedrin could not find any testimony, it says, by which they could convict Jesus of a crime, even though there were many crimes levied against him at the time, they just plainly asked him. We read about this last week. And said this. They said, are you the son of God? And when Jesus answered them in the affirmative, saying this, you rightly say that I am, that is when they slammed down the gavel of judgment, finding Jesus guilty of blasphemy and declaring that there was no need for any further testimony. Now, this would only be a blasphemous thing if it was untrue, right? It's blasphemous to go, yeah, I'm God in the flesh. And, and that's what Jesus was saying. Yeah, you rightly say. And, 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 and because they did not believe, they, they charged him with blasphemy and, 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 and said there's no need for any further testimony. In other words, um, uh, he, he, you've spoken against yourself. And, and this is when the whole multitude, as we read here in this next chapter, this is when the whole multitude of them rose up. And, and I, I picture it in my mind as I, I see these guys because these are the same guys that were like hiding in the fields when Jesus' disciples were walking to Jerusalem, picking the grain, right, and, 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 and eating some of it on the Sabbath day, and they're like hiding out in the field, and they pop up. Ah, we got you, right? And these, these guys are characters, and, and, and so I, in my mind, I picture them as soon as the gavel slammed down, they all, they all jump up, and, and they say like as fast as they can, they're, they're running to, 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 to the Romans, to, to take care of business. And, and um, the reason why they do this is the whole multitude is they rose up and they took Jesus to Pilate and they did so because they had a full expectation of receiving a favorable decision from Pilate regarding these accusations and a judgment against Jesus for the crimes that he had committed. Now, like I said, not only does the Bible teach us this and secular history, but archaeological history Specifically, if you look at the Pilate Stone, it tells us that Pilate was the fifth Roman governor appointed by Rome to oversee the region of Judea. He ruled, Pilate Stone tells us this, from 26 to 36 AD. 
That would now, if 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 that stone, which documented that, or other historical evidence documented the fact that he ruled over Judea in a time frame sooner than this, or a time frame after this, we would have a problem, would we not? But we don't, because the Bible is accurate. When all of the time, how much of it? All of it, in every claim that it makes. Uh, not only historically, but spiritually. You can trust it. You can build your life upon it. And normally, Pilate, he and the majority of his soldiers, they were stationed in this coastal city of Caesarea. That's where their base of operation was, if you will, over all of Judea. Why? Because it's beautiful. And there's a seaport there. And if you're a Roman governor, you know what? You, you, you want to be in a beautiful place. You know, in Israel, it's hot. It gets hot, like unbearable hot. And, but if you're on the beach with the sand, it's not so bad, right? And, and so, so here's this Roman governor. They're set up in the coastal sea of Caesarea. And, and typically, only a garrison, which was about 5,000 Roman soldiers, were on duty in Jerusalem there in the fortress of Antonio, or the Antonia Fortress a place where I got to teach at, the second place I got to teach at. Uh, I don't know if Pastor I'll plan that out, but it's real cool. I got to teach, like I said, in Caesarea and in the Antonio Fortress. And, 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 but during this Passover feast, what we know historically and, is that Pilate, and this is the reason why he's here not in, in, in Jerusalem at this time, even though he, his base of operation was in Caesarea, he, he took up a temporary residence in Jerusalem uh, during the Passover free, feast, and he increased the number of forces there because there was this fear the, of Jewish rebellion, of Jewish uprisings, which were common during these times of these feasts because the national pride would rise up. And, and as governor, as governor, Pilate um, was Caesar's representative. And, and what that means is, is he had full judicial power over all life and over all death. And he could reverse the capital sentence, the capital census that had been passed by the Sanhedrin, which had to be submitted to him for ratification. And um, he could either pass them or he could reject them. And as the Roman governor, furthermore, as the Roman governor, Pilate had the power to appoint whomever he wanted to the position of high priest. And we see that reflected by what we also read in here, how there was two who held that office, not, not officially, but two who held that office at this time. And that's because the Roman governor had appointed Caiaphas as high priest. Oh yeah, think about this. And I, I, I recently just discovered this in some of the, the things that I, that I was reading and, and, and preparing for, is that, that the, the power that he had even went into the temple. He controlled the temple. He literally had the keys to the temple to be able to keep people in and keep people out. And, and not only that, but of the, the funds, the, 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 the treasury, he had the, the power over the funds of the treasury. In fact, the holy vestments that the high priest would wear, which we read about when we were studying through the book of um, Exodus, the, these, these, the breastplate and, and the outer garments and the inner, all the, 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 the vestments, the holy vestments, the holy garments of the high priest, they were kept in the Roman governor's custody. And they were only released to the high priest for the religious festivals. And only when, history teaches us, when Pilate was in, when the Roman governor was in 
Jerusalem and when he had brought these additional troops to patrol the city. And the bottom line is that Pilate was in control. Okay, don't make, make no mistakes. He was in complete control of everything that was going on at this point. And the Jewish leaders could do nothing to Jesus without Pilate's permission. So when they, in verse 2, began to accuse Jesus before Pilate, they testified against him, I would say, with a clever accusation that made it seem that as if Jesus was an enemy of Rome, right? And said, Jesus had perverted the nation. As a matter of fact, he's called himself a king, Pilate. And furthermore, he, he's not, he won't pay taxes to Caesar. Now, this had nothing to do with the, 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 the trial that Jesus had just undergone there with the Sanhedrin. And it was none of the accusations that he had been declared guilty of. But they had emphasized these political things as an indictment against Jesus because they knew that it would be very unlikely that Pilate would grant them the, the, the death sentence that they were looking for for the religious crimes that they had convicted Jesus of. Considering their religious laws and the breaking of them by which they brought the sins of death upon Jesus, they meant nothing to a Roman official. Now, history teaches us that Pilate, not, not just that he could be, he was a ruthless man. He didn't rise to the power of Roman governor over Judea, all of Judea, because he was a wimp. He was a ruthless man, a tough man, and, and a military man. And, 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 um, but he was also smart. And he was a man who understood the Jewish power structures and he used them to his advantages. And we see that illustrated for us in the events that took place that we read about. However, I will say this. The handling of this trial of, Je of Jesus also reveals another side of Pilate. The fact that he was indecisive. That he was weak in many ways. And ultimately that he was a compromising man. Just not, not politically, but in his own life personally. A compromising man. And even though Rome's motto was, let justice be done though the heavens fall, we see that Pilate wasn't concerned about justice in this instance, in this situation. In fact, his only concern was to protect himself and his job. And when Pilate questioned Jesus for himself, look here in verse 3, he asked him in verse 3, based upon the accusation, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And if you're the Roman governor and all of a sudden they say, hey, this guy, he's claiming to be king, that would be an accusation that you would want to address. But in asking this question and in questioning Jesus and in hearing Jesus' response and observing the situation, Pilate not being a fool, a smart man, he did not find fault. He did not find fault with Jesus in light of this accusation, even though Jesus had responded in the affirmative when he said, when he answered Pilate, he said, it is as you say. Nevertheless, Pilate found no reason to declare Jesus to be guilty of the accusations the religious leaders had made against him. And three different times, we won't get through all of them today, um, but three different, well, yeah, I guess we will. Three different times we'll see it that, that um, Pilate declares the innocence of Jesus. Three different times. Here in verse 4, first. Then in verse 14, you can look again, he'll say it. And then lastly again in verse 22. But listen, in the end, he capitulated. 
even though he had made this declaration of Jesus' innocence three different times, he capitulated to the religious leader's demands to put Jesus to death. In light of this, Pilate has gone down in history as the man who tried Jesus, declared him to not be guilty three different times, and still crucified him. But Pilate was not the only one who declared Jesus' innocence. In fact, in this chapter alone, Luke records the words of three other witnesses who also made a declaration of not guilty. King Herod, in verse 15. One of the thieves who hung on the cross next to Jesus in verse 41. And then lastly, you can look even a little further, in verse 47, the centurion soldier, the commander of the centurion, the leader, the, the, the one who had been in charge of all the moving of Jesus and the beating of Jesus and all the behind-the-scenes scenes of it, this guy who also had even more of an opportunity to probably firsthand examine Jesus Christ makes this statement of innocence while Jesus hung and died on the cross. Now, even though Jesus answered Pilate's questions in verse 3, we're told in Matthew chapter 27, listen to this, this is so important, in Matthew chapter 27, verse, 20, verse 12, that while he had been accused by the chief priests and the elders, that he had answered them nothing, is what we're told. And then in Matthew chapter 27, a little bit further down in verse 14, we're told that when Pilate asked Jesus to respond to the many accusations that these religious leaders had levied against him, had testified against him before Pilate, that it says that he, quote unquote, answered him, Pilate, not one word, so that he, the governor, Pilate, marveled greatly. And why do you think he marveled greatly? Because the accusations that were brought against Jesus were no small thing, and, and what was weighing in the balance was life and death. Now, I don't know about you, but if it was my life or, or, my, or my death, my life that was weighing in the balance, and these people were weighing all these accusations against me before this man who had the power to sentence me to death, I'm probably going to make my best case. And he marveled. He marveled at Jesus. And like I said, I don't know about you, but this is, this, for me, when I think about this in relationship to my daily life and in my Christian life specifically, which hopefully is my daily life, <laughs> it's, <laughs> you can relate. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly convicting, guys, when you hear this about Jesus. It's convicting because even though Jesus had every right to defend his innocence. Even though he had every right to defend his innocence, he did not defend himself to his adversaries. Rather, he remained silent, and we know that he ultimately fulfilled the prophecy spoken of him in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, which says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that's an unusual prophecy, right? Why is that significant? Why is that important? And not only that, you go, why would he not defend himself? And we know on the base level of that is that he'd come to fulfill a specific mission. And it was all part of God's plan. And, 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 and the truth was known even though Jesus didn't speak it out, right? We see that over again. Even by the man who condemned him to death said, he's innocent. Everybody that examined Christ said, he's innocent. 
Even the Jewish leaders who held him accountable in the Hebrew court of law could not find a real reason by which to condemn him of breaking any law. And the words that he did speak that they did accuse him by were words of truth. So it wasn't even really this issue of, well, maybe he would speak and then show himself to be innocent and then, then all of God's plan would have been forwarded because then he wouldn't have been sentenced to death and then he wouldn't have become the sacrifice. That could not have been it. So why? Why are we told here that he remains silent and why was it prophesied about? And when we understand this more, I think it's even more convicting because this is a convicting thing because not only is it a good example for us to follow, because Christ is our example in everything, right? Not only is it a good example, and I'll explain why, not only is it a good example for us, but what we read here is also a good reminder for us. And what is this a good example and a good reminder for us of? That it's best not to open our mouths and to defend ourselves when we are accused. And I know, I know that deep inside that kind of can maybe rub you a little raw. You're like, what are you talking about? Not defend myself? Are you kidding me? Especially if I'm innocent? But yet this is the example that we're given. This is what was prophesied about. And why? Why is it best? Why is it a good reminder? Why is it a good example? And the reason why is because the truth is, is that defending myself is exactly what I want to do when I've been falsely accused by an adversary. Right? That's the truth. Even when I am guilty of that thing I've been accused of, I still want to defend myself. But if there's innocence, even a little bit of innocence, I want that innocence. I want my righteousness. I want justice. All these things. But Jesus, if you remember, he had told his disciples early on in his ministry, there in the Sermon on the Mount, in the midst of the Beatitudes, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 25, said that, that when they were in this very same kind of situation, that they were to, he says this, agree with your adversary quickly, lest you be handed over to the judges and cast into prison. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is a message to believers, those who are dwellers of the kingdom of God. And as the dwellers of kingdom of God and citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we've been shown, given, and commanded to live differently than the world. Why? Because citizens live of, of a specific country or nation live differently than others from another if you, go, if you travel the world, you know, or if you've had a foreigner come be with you, you're like, you're, you're a little different. They do things differently. And as citizens of God's kingdom, we're also to live differently, do things differently. And this is one of those things, as Jesus gives us the kingdom message to his kingdom dwellers. Agree with your adversary quickly, lest you be handed over to the judges and cast into the prison. And one of the things that we need to remember is, is that that the, the message that Christ gave in the Sermon on the Mount, as often was the truth with all of Jesus' messages, primarily had a spiritual application, right? And so often those who were of this world that he was speaking to or were temporal-minded missed the point because they were like, huh, cast into prison, handed over to judges? You know, they're thinking about it first in this temporal point of view. But there's a spiritual truth being taught here, and so we need to first look through it in regards to the spiritual man. And how this applies to our lives. And you know, we might hear this and we might think that it's unfair that we should have we should have the that we should have the right to defend our innocence. Jesus, just because I'm of another kingdom and you're you're it's not it's not fair to, to just be silent, to agree with my adversary. What if they're lying? 
But the fact of the matter is, is, is this, first of all. Here's the truth. We're not innocent like Jesus. Right? We're not innocent like Jesus, and yet he remained silent before his accusers. Innocent. Furthermore, if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that any accusation spoken against us is probably contains at least a measure of truth that we are guilty of. When someone comes to you and says, you did this and you're like that, and you're like, no, I didn't, no, I'm not. And the truth is, is you've probably done that at some point in your life, and yes, you are like that in some way. That's the truth. You know, the police officer pulls you over for speeding, and you're like, I was going 55. 15 minutes ago, before I ran into you, I was probably, right? I, yeah. And, and, and that's just a, a funny analogy of pointing out this truth that we're probably what's spoken against us. Even though it may not be exactly true in the moment, the truth is any accusation against us probably contains, if we're honest, a measure of truth that we're guilty of. And more than likely, the real truth about us is, 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 is that we're, we're, we're probably worse than any accusation that anyone could ever speak against us. And, and, and how, here's the reason why I know that, even about myself, and probably to be true about, it is true about you, even when you want to admit it or not, is because everyone has things that we've done that we don't want anyone to ever know about, ever. Shame. And, 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 and we're grateful that God knows about them. We've confessed to them. We've been healed. We've been forgiven. But, but we know what we're like. So Jesus tells us, I think, to agree quickly lest we be cast into prison. And I believe that in part, Jesus is spiritually, figuratively speaking, not of the prisons with the bars that you can be locked into for doing something wrong, but I think more so the prison of your mind. Listen to this. He tells us to agree quickly lest we be cast into prison. And I believe that it's speaking figuratively first and foremost of the prison of our mind. And this prison, what is this? This is those words of defense that we find ourselves often in those situations running over and over and over again in our mind like a broken record as we attempt to justify and prove to ourselves first that we're not like the accusations that were spoken against us. And we're going to let them people know. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life, this place of running things over and over and over again in my mind has always been a prison. It's always been a prison. Primarily because I've never lost the argument that takes place in my mind. And consequently, I'm trapped in this place of being, as the Bible says, is not a good place, being right in my own mind And as a result, unwilling to then even look at my faults and therefore unwilling ultimately to admit my faults. So in that moment when I finally open my mouth to defend myself with this brilliantly thought out defense, right? I'm always further away from, this is why it's a prison, I'm always further away from a peace of mind in that potential place of peace with my adversary when I open my mouth to speak my defense in that moment. And the point is, it isn't until I stop defending myself, it isn't until I allow for God to be my fence, that I'm ultimately set free from the prison of my mind and receive peace in the situation. And the Bible tells us that it can be a peace that comes from God which passes the circumstances that I'm in. And in light of this, we need to understand that lasting peace does not come from a brilliant defense that disarms 
the accusers or the accusations. Because we're still left with the battle of defense that is going in our mind, and therefore peace comes. The Bible teaches us, Jesus is teaching us, Jesus is exampling to us. Peace comes by letting go and not hanging on. Listen, in, in Psalm, in Psalm verse 37, chapter 37, verses 1 through 6, it says this. Because this is exactly what we do when we're doing that thing in our brain and going over and over again, laying up at night. It says, do not fret because of evildoers. That, that record-playing thing that you do, it's a fretting. It's a fretting. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall, why? For they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Rather, I added that, but it says this, it says, don't do this, do this. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he, I love this, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And the cool thing about that is the light exposes the darkness. And when you see the light as if it is the noonday, there's no shadow when the sun is directly above. There's no place for the lies to hide. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of that. In his time, in his way, he's our defense. And when we let go, that's what takes place. So in verse 6, as we continue on, it says, And when Pilate heard of Galilee, when Pilate heard of Galilee, remember that Jesus was from Galilee, he asked if the, the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, again an examination by a leader, but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. When the chief priests and the scribes stood, okay, you see the scene there, they're all before Herod, these religious leaders, they stood, Jesus answered nothing, but these chief priests and these scribes, these accusers, like Satan, vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt, and they mocked him, and they arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Now, the verdict of I find no fault in this man made by Pilate, we see that was not enough to satisfy these religious leaders, right? Oh, I find him innocent. Set him free. Oh, okay, Pilate. Yeah, that's, that's not how it went. And so they, according to verse 5, if you look there, pressured Pilate by bringing another accusation against Jesus, saying he's stirring up the people for a rebellion. But when Pilate, who wanted to appease these religious leaders, and yet at the same, not, at the same time really didn't want to condemn an innocent man, when he realized that Jesus was from the region of Galilee, 
He thought, he believed he'd found a way out of this predicament that he was in. And in verse 7, it tells us that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, who had jurisdiction over the region of Galilee, a different region of Judea, who just happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. And he did so with the hopes that the burden would now fall on Herod's shoulders. Now, according to Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 9, this Herod, you guys know him, he's the one who killed John the Baptist. This very guy, this Herod, he had heard many things about Jesus, we're told in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, and, 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 and from way back then, he had been seeking to see Jesus. In fact, in verse 8, it tells us here that it was for a long time that Herod had desired to see Jesus, this man, um, and, and whom he had heard many things about. And so when Herod found out that Pilate was sending, him, sending Jesus to him, he was excited because he thought that Jesus might perform some miracle for him. But listen, Herod was not a seeker of the truth. It wasn't like he wanted the miracle so he could like, oh, you are the son of God, right? Herod was not a seeker of the truth. On the contrary, what we know about Herod is he hated the truth. Herod hated the truth. And this is the reason why he had arrested John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist said, hey, you're sleeping with your brother's wife. That's not good. Oh yeah, arrest him, cut off his head. Don't you tell me that. He hated the truth, and that's the reason why he had John the Baptist put to death. So in Herod's mind, Jesus was nothing more than someone who might be able to amuse him at the very best or entertain him for a little while. However, when Jesus was in front of Herod, he would not answer any of his questions. And I think it was for a completely different reason. I think it was due to the fact that when, when Herod had killed John the Baptist, who, 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 who had spoken God's words of truth to him, that in killing the messenger of God, Herod had rejected at that moment and silenced the voice of God in his life. And the point is, is Herod had made his decision. And I think at this time, if Jesus would have spoke or if Jesus would have performed a miracle for, for Herod, answering his questions, he would have just been casting pearls before a swine. The Bible says, don't do that. Don't do that. And so Jesus, by his silence, listen, this is the cool thing. Jesus, by his silence, was passing judgment on Herod instead of Herod passing judgment on him. And man, there's a lot of power in that, especially, guys, when you're being falsely accused. And that person's blabbing and blabbing and blabbing and blabbing about you and you're still being silent. Those words that people speak, if they're false and then God reveals them, will be the judgment. But in the midst of Jesus' silences, the chief priests and the scribes, you get the picture here in verse 10, they stood and they just continued to accuse Jesus Hoping that Herod, whom they knew to be an evil man, right? They're like, okay, this guy's even better than Pilate. Knewing him to be an evil man, they believed that he might carry out their evil plans. But instead of convicting Jesus of any crime, Herod treated Jesus with disrespect. He mocked him, and he dressed him in this king's robe before sending him back to Pilate. And if you look, it says in verse 12, that the only thing this encounter did was to establish, this is so subtle, but it's so important, it established a friendship between Pilate and Herod who had previously been enemies with each other. And, and this, guys, it's such a sad thing when you stop to think about it, but it goes to show us that when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, there really is only two choices. We're either to be before Jesus or to be against Jesus. There's no in-between place. And our decision, our decision 
either to be for Jesus or to be against Jesus, that decision, the Bible teaches us, will either make us friends with those who oppose Jesus or friends and family, more important, with those who follow Jesus. And in James chapter 4, verses 4 from 5, this, this truth is, straighted, is stated all the more where James writes and he says this. He says, do you not know? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Guys, there's no in-between place. You can, we cannot be friends of this world and, and, and still be at peace with God. He says, if you are a friend with this world, you are an enemy of God. That's what James says. He says, therefore, whoever therefore wants to be friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, if we continue on in verse 13, it says, Then Pilate, when he had called together, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, he said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning these things of which you accuse him. Nor, neither, no, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it is necessary for him, for it was necessary for him, Herod, or Pilate, to release, it says here in parentheses, one of them at the feast. And then in verse 18, they cried, out, they cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Barabbas. Who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they called out, shouting, shout, they call, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him. And he said to them a third time, he's begging them, he's pleading with them. He says, why, what evil has he done? I find, again, no reason for death in him, and I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he requested and he, and he, and he released them. And he released, and he released to them the one they requested, whom for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now, when Jesus was sent back to Pilate, I'm looking at all of the gospel accounts. He called the chief priests and the rulers back in this attempt to reason with them. Do you see that? An attempt to reason with them, and, and specifically in verses 14 and 15, by saying that he nor neither Herod, neither one of them had found any fault in Jesus deserving of death. So Pilate said, Pilate, listen, Pilate's going, he's saying, listen, I'll just chastise him. I, literally what he says, I'll have him beaten, and then I'll release him. Because it's customary for it was customary for the Roman governor, as we read here, to release a Jewish prisoner, specifically during the Passover. And the Rome had set this up in order to help keep peace during this political time, this political sensitive time. In the other gospel accounts, we're told that Pilate actually gave the people the choice to release Jesus or this man named Barabbas. That 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 Pilate said, "Okay, 
how about this guy or this guy? And the very fact, listen, the very fact that Pilate had chosen Barabbas to be released, I think it further reveals to us that he didn't want Jesus to be put to death. He went and got the very worst guy he could and said, you know, what about, you know, what's that guy who ate people, Dauber or Dahmer? What about Dahmer? You know, that's, that's kind of the idea here. You want me to set free this guy who eats people or this guy who's innocent? You know, it's, it's, that, it's to that degree of evil that this guy was known for. And, and, and know, he was known by all to be an evil man, a thief, a murderer. He was guilty of the death that awaited him. There was no doubts about whether he was guilty and innocent. So Pilate thought that if the crowds were given the opportunity to choose which of these men to set free, they would surely choose to set Jesus free before they would ever choose to set Barabbas free. But the crowds did not choose Jesus. They chose Barabbas, a guilty man. They did not choose Jesus, an innocent man. They chose Barabbas, a guilty man. And they shouted for Jesus, who was innocent, to be crucified. The Greek translates this response in verse 21. I love this. I think it's, more, I think it's powerful. It says in verse 21, it, 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 it translates that wordage there as only one word, a singular word. Not crucify him, but just crucify. Crucify, crucify. And in, in, in response, Pilate in verse 22 asked, why? What evil has he done? I, I found no reason for death in him. Therefore, I will chastise him and let him go. Now, the other gospel accounts tells us that at this time, Pilate took Jesus and gave him over to his Roman soldiers to be scourged. The scourging that Jesus received was a gruesome thing. But it was a final attempt to gain some sympathy for this innocent man in Pilate's mind, I think, in part. Some sympathy for Jesus so that the crowds would relent in their calls to have Jesus crucified. A Roman scourging was done with an instrument called a flagellum. And it was a whip that consisted of 12 leather straps, and each strap had a lead ball attached to the end of it. And in between the lead ball and the handle were pieces of glass and steel that were embedded into the leather. Into the leather. And the scourging that Pilate had condemned Jesus to, it consisted of 40 lashes of the whip. And you guys know with each, each lash of the whip, pieces of the flesh would be ripped away. So much so that it would eventually expose bone, history teaches us, and internal organs. And after this beating that would often kill a man, Mark's gospel account tells us that Jesus was clothed in purple Crown with a crown of thorns, which was beaten into his head with a reed. And then Jesus was presented. He was brought out from the, 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 the Antonio Fortress prison cells, back into the courtyard, and he was presented to the crowd, was standing, with Pilate standing by his side, and he, and, and, and he said, Pilate said, according to John chapter 19, verse 5, he said this, simply these, these three words. Behold the man. Behold the man. With the hope that the crowd might be moved to mercy, having seen the suffering that Jesus had endured, that they would relent in their request to have Jesus crucified. The worship team wants to come up. We're going to end this. But the crowd, they called out again. It says in verse 23, 
with all the more, they cried out with loud voices and said, crucify. And so Pilate gave his sentence and said that it should be as they willed, as they requested. The fact that Jesus, who was innocent, is no doubt. Son of God, it is as you say. I'm a king. Son of God. And the fact that he who was innocent was taken to be crucified and that Barabbas, who was guilty, was set free, guys, it gives us an amazing picture of the salvation that we've been given as a result of our faith in Jesus right here in this account. Because the truth is, is that all of us, we're also guilty. I'm Barabbas. You're Barabbas. And we stand convicted because of the things that we've done And we're all guilty, guilty of rebellion, guilty of transgressing God's laws, and guilty of breaking God's commands. And as a result, we deserve death. Yet Jesus, who is innocent, who always does the will of his Father in heaven, willingly, the Bible tells us, and and these words show us that he willingly took the punishment that we deserve. He gave his life so that we might live. So the trial and the death of Jesus Christ reveals not only the wicked heart of man, but also reveals the gracious heart of God. And when men, when we as mankind were doing our worst, God was giving us his best. Will you stand? Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it tells us this. If you hear nothing today, hear this. Chapter 5, verse 20. But, I love this, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Jesus was not crucified because evil men decided to get, get him out of the way, the religious leaders. His crucifixion was by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, literally an appointment made from eternity, and it was all done for us, for us. Father, thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for the grace that you've shown us, the mercy that you've poured out on us, the love that you've called us into. And I pray, God, that as we see you as our Savior again today, that we would submit our lives to you as Lord to go where you call us to go, to do what you call us to do, to live the life that you call us to live, setting aside our own hopes and dreams for your wills and your purposes for our lives. And in that, God, let us live as kingdom dwellers here upon this earth until the day that you come back for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.